Welcome to the Becoming Beautiful I Am podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Joan. Do you know the time, the place, and the space where you got stuck? Let me ask it a different way. Do you know the moment when you experienced a wounding so great it caused a terrible divide? And what do I mean by the divide? Well, it happens on different levels, but it's a spiritual separation. First, there's a separation between you and the one who wounded you, because we're all connected. You got to remember that. Then there's a separation between you and your true self, the spiritual self. And more importantly, there's a separation between you and God. The period of time between the wounding and the full and complete healing of the wound is called the dark night. So what do I mean by the full and complete healing of the wound? Is that even possible? Yeah, it is. You burn down the room. Yeah. And I mean with an intensity, a fierce intensity, right there in the middle of the garden where you birth the room. You also burn it down and you enter into a new reality. And that reality is your reconciliation with God. So about 10 days ago, I actually recorded the episode called The Dark Night. And after recording it, I recognized that I had some major forgiving to do. I think as I was recounting the dream, there was one particular character that stood out a character that I call the onlooker. These are the people who watch us struggle. And for years, they notice things like our despair. They notice our anger or perhaps even our rage. They definitely notice our loneliness. But not once, not once do they step out and try to help us. And I used to contemplate why, you know. Um, And then in the stubbornly optimistic Christian style, I made excuses for them. Yeah, there was, (laughs) I say stubbornly optimistic because, you know, there was a time when I was trying to lift a research project off the ground. And I mean, it was a good research project. But no matter what I did, There were always these barriers that I just couldn't break through. And I remember just always saying, you know, it's okay. You know, we'll try again. We'll do this the next time, you know. And one of the people that was on the research team, he finally said to me, you know, Joan, you are stubbornly optimistic. (laughs) And aren't a lot of Christians stubbornly optimistic? We say to ourselves things like, you know, peace, it is well, you know, God's got this in his hand. (laughs) And what we deny is a presence that is actually at war with us. So the onlooker, I used to say to myself, they're afraid to step out, you know, there are people too, who are struggling with their stuff. And in part, I think that's true. But I've also come to this understanding. There are people in this world who do not care. And in fact, there are people in this world who are covered by a dark shadow. And these people actually enjoy watching us struggle. Yeah, I know. Stay with me because a lot of us who, you know, are spiritual people, who are seekers, We don't want to see this. I certainly didn't want to see this. But after I completed the last episode, I had to look at those onlookers. I had to look them straight in the eye. And as I forgave those people who watched my struggle and even added to it, I finally saw something I'd been blind to. Something I had fought really, really hard to deny. 
I finally broke through a barrier that allowed me to see the spiritual battlefield that we are all on. So in a way, I'm, I'm telling you the end of the story before I tell you the beginning. And I want to tell you the end of the story because it has taken me six years to get where I am. You know, one of my teachers, in fact, the woman who taught me uh, the forgiveness process that I'm going to teach all of you, uh, her name is Lynn Himmelman, and she said something rather selfless to me years ago. She said, where I end is where you begin. And in other words, all of my knowledge, you know, the cumulative knowledge and experience that I have, the education that I have, all the different uh, types of research that I've been involved in on kind of like a individual level, but also on a community level. It helps me to help you do in six months what has taken me six years. <laughs> in other words, what I know now will help you to move through this as kind of lightning speed as opposed to the slow process that I moved through and that was for a larger purpose so that I could do teach I could teach people about how to move this at move through this at lightning speed so here's the one thing I do know after we learn all the lessons embedded in the room we must burn it down. Literally, in your mind's eye, you must see the room for what it is. A carefully concocted master plan to murder you. Yeah. Just stay with that thought for a second. A carefully concocted master plan to murder you. And here's the truth we must all awaken to. We became a co-conspirator in carrying out the master plan. Stay with me. You became a co-conspirator in carrying out the master plan. And so the way that I went about, you know, at first trying to destroy the room was to take a hammer and a chisel and board by board move through a forgiveness journey that would basically unravel the room. But the boards are still there. Everything is still present. And so after the last episode, because I'm a visualizer, and because I'd come to this place where I could now destroy everything, right there in the middle of the garden, I had now escaped the room. I could see the garden for what it is. And with all the rage that was in, within me after that forgiveness, I set that room on fire. And as it burned, I think the rage and whatever emotions was being processed at that time allowed me to break through into a new reality. So here's what that new reality looked like. The garden disappeared, and now I stand, and in front of me is an encampment, tents, like thousands and th thousands upon thousands of tents. And I see men, warriors, angels. I see people who are in an encampment that we could call the angels' armies. Saints are there but also warriors and also angels who are preparing to fight a battle. And I broke through with a rage and I somehow, I wanted to launch that entire encampment into battle. And what I must also say is there were these beautiful mountains kind of like in the backdrop. There was like just grass in this one um, area that allowed us to camp and um, the sky it was just daylight it was beautiful pristine daylight so I'm going to tell you about the dark night but this was daylight and 
as if I had awoken from a dream, I was like, let's go. (laughs) I was ready for battle. And I was like, you know, it was like I was blowing the horn and I was getting everybody ready for battle. And a voice, God's voice said, rest. And I screamed again, let's go. And it was like now in a very calm, (laughs) in a very calm voice, it was like a command this time, rest. And you know, when you've got the adrenaline pumping, right? That it protects you because it doesn't, the wounds that you have, um, you are almost unaware of it. And it was in responding to that voice that said, rest, that I finally noticed the wounds that were all over my body. I had wounds in my lower abdomen and kind of like the just above the bladder area. I had wounds across my chest um, and then also in my shoulder. And then I fell to the ground. And in this experience that I'm talking to you about, I could, I, it was like I was there and I was fully conscious experiencing my day. And so I was going through my day of reading books. I was going through my day of speaking to people, um, doing counseling. And yet I was experiencing this other reality where I was wounded. And then it was like, you know, the person who was beaten on the road uh, to Samaria and a Samaritan came and now took that person up and began to bandage their wounds and dress them or paid somebody to do it. There I was, this wounded, beaten up soldier (laughs) in this army. And now I was being taken care of. I was literally in a tent. And I was, there were two men posted at the front of my tent who were guarding me. Um, And there were others, maybe one or two, who were helping to dress my wounds and to, um, you know, just get me better. I spent about three days, like three solid days of just going in and out of consciousness with an awareness of who I am by different characters that showed up. And because I didn't look like myself. And um, eventually, after about three days, I was able to get out of the tent and just go and sit outside and watch what was going on. And it was like there was training that was going on. There were people talking. No one was coming towards me because they knew I was recovering. But Christ came and sat with me at the entrance of this tent And we simply sat in silence and there was a transfer of information that uh, was altogether silent. And yet there was this presence, there was this beautiful awareness that I had come back to a place where I once was. And even today that experience continues. I am now up and I'm getting stronger and stronger every single day. And what I'm being taught is how to prepare for the battle that is to come. And so here's the thing. We all need to heal the wound because the wounds keep us preoccupied. They keep us distracted from knowing what the real battle is. So literally in our mind's eye, we have to see the room for what it is. And we have to burn it down. And whether, you know, whether that happens for you in a very calm way, I think, though, all of us have to get to that point where we're like, this is finished, like no more of it. And I think that's when we break through. So in the last episode, I had read a poem written by St. John of the Cross It was called The Dark Night. It is called The Dark Night of the Soul. And I was using that to anchor um, the movement into talking about the dream that I had that's called The Dark Night. 
And I want to read that poem to you again, but from a much, much different place than where I had experienced it like 10 days ago. So here we go. On a dark night, kindled in love with yearnings, oh, happy chance. I went forth without being observed, my house being now at rest. In darkness and secure, by the secret ladder disguised, oh, happy chance, in darkness and concealment, my house being now at rest. In the happy night in secret, when none saw me, nor I beheld aught, without light or guide, save that which burned in my heart, this light guided me, more surely than the light of noonday, to the place where he, well, I knew who was awaiting me, a place where none appeared. O night that guided me, O night more lovely than the dawn, O night that joined beloved with lover, lover transformed in the beloved. Upon my flowery breast, kept holy for himself alone. There he stayed sleeping and I caressed him and the fanning of the cedars made a breeze. The breeze blew from the turret as I parted his locks. And with his gentle hand, he wounded my neck and caused my senses to be suspended. I remained lost in oblivion. My face, I reclined on the beloved. All ceased and I abandoned myself leaving my cares forgotten among the lilies. It's a beautiful poem. And if you don't know who the beloved is, the beloved is God. But this poem is talking about the dark night as a transformation process, one whereby we go up a secret ladder, a spiritual ladder, and it's disguised. And what I want to suggest is that the secret ladder is our ladder of forgiveness. The ladder is forgiveness because this is what Christ used to reconcile us to our God. And so we must walk or go up that ladder. We must also rise. But the wounding creates a darkness. It creates a darkness within us that we must now totally annihilate. So we must go to that place where we meet with God. We must go to that place where it is the noonday as opposed to the night. And so as we encounter our beloved, as we encounter God, we come to that place where we can finally rest, where we can finally allow him to heal the wounds, yeah, and even allow the cedars, the breeze of the cedars, to just fan a new wave, a new aroma around us. You know, and there is a period of time of relaxation where the gentle hand of God looks at the wounds and heals the wounds by placing us into a place of suspension. And as we recline, there is an abandonment of the whole self, the old self. There's a renewal, an understanding of who we actually are and as we understand ourselves, true purpose, true purpose, yeah, true purpose avails itself. So the first time I did the episode, I was in a space where I was willing to, in a way, romanticize the dark night in, in much the same way that this poem does. It romanticizes it. But there's no, nothing romantic about the dark night. I think I said the dark side, <laughs> but bear with me. There's nothing romantic about the dark night. It's a hard, lonely road to travel. And one that ends only when we reconcile with God. And as I've mentioned multiple times, the way that reconciliation comes about is when we mirror Christ 
and we ourselves also forgive and begin to see the ways in which someone has harmed us, but also we have now mirrored them by taking on the very beliefs that they poured into our cup and now we pour it on ourselves and we we now pour it on all others. So the dark night is not something we should tolerate because it reflects our spiritual death, it reflects our spiritual blindness, and it reflects what Christ referred to as our sleeping, right? And so we must awake, we must be awoken or awaken to the reality that is. And our awakening can occur over months or years as we forgive, but I think there is also a way to just speed this up. So right now what I want to do is I want to tell you about the dream that I had called The Dark Night. And then in our episodes to follow, um, I'm going to talk to you about forgiveness and what true forgiveness looks like. So here we go. I am tempted to read The Dark Night directly from my book, 490 Forgive and Live Fearlessly. But I think this one, I want to just tell the story as opposed to read it. I think there's some, there's some power in just recalling the moment for me as it was. Um, and not adding anything to it. So at the time when I had this dream, it was probably 2006, and I was heading into the second semester of my PhD program. And not only was I feeling lost, but I was feeling very dissatisfied with life. I was in a PhD program, it ultimately was where I wanted to be. But I was also studying a lot of things that I know were scientific and research-based and feminist-oriented and community-oriented and all of those things, but there was this dissatisfaction with the fact that none of it spoke to a deeper knowing that I had, a deeper knowing that even I didn't know that I had Um, a deeper knowing that would come many, many years later. Um, And this dream that I'm going to tell you about didn't actually make sense until after I moved through a second forgiveness of my mother. There's always the first forgiveness, and the first forgiveness really gets to the root of what I call separation the distance between you and a source of love. But there's also a point where there's a true cutting off, a disconnection point. And sometimes those two things happen at the same time. But for me, separation happened when I was three years old and disconnection happened when I was 15. And it was when I forgave that 15-year-old moment that this dream, the dark night, made sense. So the dream begins with an awareness that myself and my husband have made a decision. We've made a decision that we are desiring to move to the country. We we live in the suburbs, but we wanted more space, more land. Uh, We wanted Uh, to just be where there was more of nature. Um, And so that decision was made. And as the dream is beginning, uh, we have moved through a process of engaging a realtor in our searching experience. And so the dream begins with her actually giving me a call. And in that call, she's a little bit frantic something has happened uh, that stops her from actually 
heading to the place, to this house that we're supposed to see. And so in the dream, we had seen some pictures of the property. We felt it was the right property and um, she was to take us there. But the dream begins really with her contacting me and letting me know that something urgent had come up and she needed to attend to this urgent thing, whatever it was. And so she was unable to make it to the appointment. And um, even now I feel the disappointment with her initial contact and letting us know that she wouldn't be able to follow through. But very quickly, she moved on to say that she had actually reached out to the homeowner and the homeowner was willing to show us the property. And so she had already made all the, all the arrangements and all we had to do was simply go to the house and the homeowner would show us this house. And so there's, you know, dreams, they shift, right? So it's like you get a small bit of the story and then it shifts and it moves on to the next piece. And in this next phase of the dream, my husband and I are now in the car and we're driving along this dirt road. Um, and I want to say it's more like it's gravel because you, you can hear the gravel under the car. And even in the dream, my husband was being very cautious. It was like it was a brand new car and we were driving to a new place that we had never been before. And we were on a road that was really undeveloped. And so he was moving with caution, but eventually we would get to this place. And um, it was undeveloped land. <laughs> in fact, we couldn't drive in to a driveway. So there was like a road um, and lots of trees, just lots of trees. Um, and we park at the spot where we know the house is because there is a number on the street, but this is in one of the most rural areas that you can think of, just huge uh, trees on every side. So um, we pull over and we park and we park in front of a path that is going to go up to this house. And you know, for whatever reason, we just know where it is. So we park and we get out of the car and there's a path leading up to the house and the house is at the top of this hill. But the way that the trees are positioned, we can only see the roof from where we park and the roof glistens. I mean, just glistens in the sunlight. Um, and so we are both excited. We get out of the car. The path is a small path. Um, yet it, it is worn because somebody has walked it before, but again, it's a very small path. And so we can kind of like hold each other's hands and walk up the path, uh, together, but pretty well, no one else could fit besides us. So it's, it's kind of that narrow and on both sides, you know, it's like little shrubs, uh, high grass and that sort of thing. And so we continue walking and then it's like, the clearing opens up and it's now like you're in this yard that is perfectly manicured you know the grass is at this really nice level it's almost like what you're seeing from the street is really a protection and as you walk in opens up this magnificent yard again with very mature big trees and you look at the house and you're like, your jaws drop and you're like, everything about this house listens from the front door, from the grass, from the, you know, the post at the front, you know, the windows, the roof, everything about this house is absolutely majestic. And we are just contagious with excitement, you know, just totally drunk with excitement from the beauty of this house. And um, 
as we continue to walk up towards it, the lady of the house comes towards us. Now, the interesting thing is, I've told you before that I am a nurse and she is wearing a nurse's uniform. And she also is quite meticulously dressed. And she's wearing this uniform. Her hair is like perfect. She's a black woman, just mature and, um, you know, elegant is the word for it, you know. And so, she comes and she introduces herself and she apologizes at the same time. And what she says to us is this, she says, you must be Joan and Richard. And she greets us with this lovely smile. And she says, you know, I am, I am so sorry, but I've been called into work and I on an emergency. So yet again, another emergency happens. And so she, she basically lets us know that she has to head off to work like right now. But she says, I have left the door open for you. You will love the house. Go on and take a look around. And, um, and then she starts her way down and she's warm. And I guess, you know, just very welcoming even though she can't stay with us she's extremely welcoming and then she begins to go on her way and so we turn and we look at the house and even though we're a little bit shocked by what's happening we're excited about heading in and then she calls us back and she says oh by the way um she says to us that her brother lives in the basement and um what she has to say about that is that this brother of hers is rather messy and usually she would have taken the time to clean up um, but what has happened is because she was so urgently called into work that um, she didn't have the time to do that so she declares take a look at the upstairs you know it's lovely upstairs but don't go down into the basement and so you know what the basement means. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a little while. But as the story unfolds, as the dream unfolds, we enter the house, but in the dream, it is not revealed to me what the house looks like on the inside. And it is not revealed to me that I actually experience going into the house. The dream shifts and all of a sudden now, I, it's the dead of night and I am walking a path, and this is a much wider path, um, probably uh, a car could drive this path, no problem. There was still space on both sides, it's rather wide. Um, and I'm walking this path, and it's the dead of night. And it's a gravel path, so you know when you go on the trails, if you've ever gone on a trail for a walk in the country, it was one of those kinds of trails and I'm walking the path and on both sides, forest. Um, and it's a, probably a younger type of forest because there's like a lot of young trees that are growing. And then as you look further into the forest on both sides, what you'll see are more mature trees. But at the very front of, you know, at least the entrance into the forest are younger shrubs and and trees that are are just kind of coming up and I'm walking and in the dream the sense that I have is I have been walking for a very long time and I have been trying to find my way somewhere so it's almost like I come into the middle of this experience whatever it is and I've been on a journey for some time and as I'm on this journey what I am noticing is that there are there are eyes that are looking at me. So there, there are these shadow kinds of figures, um, people, but um, their eyes are glowing like a red uh, kind of amber type color. And there's a lot of them, like a whole lot of them to the point where it, it becomes very eerie and it feels as though they could harm me. Uh, but they don't come close. They are really just watching. I now call those people the onlookers. And as I continue to walk, I notice the moon is really high and that's the only light. That's the only light that I have. There's no other light. I have nothing in my hands, so I'm really just walking, uh, but I'm tired. I'm weary. I've been doing this for a long time. Um, and 
off in the distance, there's a there's kind of like a round, you know, a corner that doesn't allow me to see the full path ahead. There's a corner, and just then I notice that there is someone ahead, a woman or a man. At first, I can't make it out, but I decide to gather all my strength and to run for it, to try and get to this person before they go around the corner. I run, I run, I run, I run, I run, and the whole time I'm calling, "Hey, Mister." Hey, lady! You know, just trying to get the person's attention, but no response, no response at all. And so now I get to the point where I'm just like right behind them, and I am about to like reach out and touch their shoulder, and the person fades away. And this fading, this disappearing of what I call the elusive figure, happens over and over. And over again, and every time I think this is the last time that I'll have to try and reach this person. Every time I think, why can't this person at least notice that I am present? Why can't this person just turn and help me understand, first of all, where I am, what it is that I'm doing, how I'm supposed to get onto the right path, how I'm supposed to find my way back, how I'm supposed to get out of this darkness, and especially with these looming eyes upon me, how I'm supposed to get the help that I need. And so, one last time, this elusive figure appears, and again, one last time, I mount up the energy to just try and catch up with this figure, and I run. And I chase, and I run, and I chase, and I'm calling, "Hey, Mister, Hey, Ma'am, can you hear me? Can you hear me?" And I get right up close once again to try and touch the person's shoulder, and they disappear. And this last time, I am so disappointed. I am so weary. I am so miserable. I scream, and it is a powerful. Unending, looming scream that basically goes, you know, through every part of who I am, through every part of what this forest is, through every part of what these onlookers are, through every part of the sky and the earth. It just dives deep. It's that moaning, groaning scream, like "Get me out of here." And even the people who were the onlookers, they shrink back at the time when I scream. And there is this deep sorrow that comes within me, and a, a surrendering, like I give up. <laughs> I give up. I give up. I give up. And that is when the dream shifts, and something. Altogether, different happens. All of a sudden, I am now in a canopy. It's like the trees have come together like a canopy and formed a tent. And I enter this space where this tent is, and there is this man that is only light. That. Can only be described as life itself and love itself and lover of my soul, and it is Christ. And he sits on like this log, <laughs> this tree that has fallen, as though he's been waiting there years upon years for me to enter. And I come into that space. Where he is, and I am embraced by this warmth and this love, like I have never experienced before, a comfort that I have never experienced before. And I come into that space, and I see there's a glowing fire. There's food that has been prepared for me, and just a warm place to sit and rest. And immediately, I begin to moan, and I begin. 
begin to like complain about how tired I am because I know who he is and I know he can give me some rest and relaxation. And and I begin to say to him, I am hungry. And he says, eat. And I, I say, I'm tired. And he says, sleep. And and I say, I, I want some rest from those onlookers. Their eyes have been upon me. And he says, I will keep them out. And there is this security there is this peace, there is this opportunity for me to just rest. I'm sure I eat, I'm sure, you know, I do all of those things that just kind of revive me. And then I beg him to just let me sleep and rest for a little while because I have been at this for so long. And he says, sleep. And so I ask him, you will be here you will be here. You will not leave me while I sleep. And he, he promises me, no, I will be here with you. I will be here with you. And I go to sleep. And then there's a shift. And I'm awoken within the sleeping. <laughs> I am awoken within the dream. I am awoken by the one that I refer to as Christ. And he says to me, Joan, I am here to tell you something. And I wonder at what he's about to tell me. And I rise from the place where I've been resting as he sits on the log. And that's the only place he's been since I've seen him. He just sits on the log and he permeates my entire being with love and with comfort and with peace. And, and he says to me, I need to tell you something. You died here a long time ago. And it is then that within the dream, there is this revelation that that house that I entered, that basement space that I entered, caused a great grief. It caused my death. It caused my disconnection. It caused something to abruptly end my relationship with my source of love or my complete connection with my source of love. And in that moment... He shows me and he says to me, on the night of your death, on the anniversary of the night of your death, your husband comes back to the place where he parked his car and he is there now. And he says, go to him, go to him, go to him now. And night becomes day. <laughs> And I know where I'm supposed to go. And I see those who I call the onlookers. They're just people. They're people now. I see their bodies, not their eyes. And I see there's so many of them that have been looking and watching. And I begin to run. They don't bother me anymore. I'm no longer afraid of them. I begin to run. And in my mind's eye, I can see my husband. And I run toward him. And I awaken. The dark night ends. So you will notice that there are a number of characters uh, in this dream, in addition to that house that we seek. <laughs> and the house has a very special meaning, but I'm going to um, address each of the characters in the dream and then I think finally weave in how they're connected to the house. So one of the first characters that comes forward in the dream is the realtor. And this person is special in that the thing we seek, they're supposed to be our guide. They have a knowing, a knowledge um, that can bring us to that place, that can help us acquire that thing that we seek. Um, but in the dream, you'll notice the abrupt leaving of that individual. The second person that comes up in this dream is the homeowner. This person obviously possesses something that we do seek. Um, and yet they take on a role tentatively that uh, they're not equipped for. And in fact, they do, again, a very early or maybe abrupt uh, leaving of the scene, um, and yet in a slightly different way uh, because they have their own stuff that they have to deal with. But 
um, in leaving and being unprepared for our entry into this place that they offer us entry into, um, they leave us at risk for being harmed. One of the uh, one of the persons who we don't actually see but is named is the brother, um, who I call the basement dweller, and this is the ultimate. Ultimately, the person who wounds us and wounds us deeply. But recall that this person lives in the basement and it's somebody that we do not see. So the wounding is occurring uh, at the hands of someone physical, but the wounding is also occurring at the hands of someone not physical. So hang on to that for a moment or hang on to that as we move through the next few episodes together. Um, after that, the scene shifts. And so we have to consider the darkness and we also have to consider, uh, you know, the, the path that we walk in the night, but then we also have to consider the onlooker. And as I mentioned before, whereas all the other characters require forgiveness, the one character that inspires, I guess, fear, um, a deep uh, anger, a deep rage within me is the onlooker. And the onlooker is that individual who sees the struggle and yet does not come out to help. Um, and I, I talked about this as, at length when I first began this episode. So I won't go back there right now until we deal with the onlooker in our forgiveness. But just to say that we as a world stand very much in that onlooker position all the time. I think for one, we think we are powerless in making a difference to the individual who is wounded. Um, but also um, we know that there are other things that are conspiring the woundings of other people. And again, rather than being in that place of coming together in a communal way, to do battle with those forces, we don't, we stay separated. And, you know, so the teacher who sees the child who is being wounded at home, abused, um, you know, tries, but perhaps is ineffective in stopping that. Or perhaps you are the worker who is taking care of, you know, a patient. And again, you're noticing the wounding, but you can only go so far. But the thing that I want to say is we can also think, see things like the environment and the wounding that is happening to our forest, to our water, to our entire uh, survival system and choose to do nothing about it. The onlooker um, is one of those, let me say, is the group of people and a consciousness that chooses to do nothing as it watches the struggle. Um, and then, of course, there is the soul lover who appears in two forms. The soul lover who is Christ, who wants the surrender, who wants to hear that cry. That cry of surrender is something that Ray Vandalon, a great teacher, um, he calls the Yavek cry, that cry, that cry of ultimate um, oppression, that cry of the oppression of the spirit, and God wanting to hear the cry of, of those who seek him. Um, in the Bible, the Yavek cry was something that was uttered by the Israelites. You know, here they were enslaved, and um, they did not know their God well, but they they screamed in a spiritual way. They cried and they moaned from a deep place that God heard and responded to. And he even said, I have heard the cry of my people and I have come now to help. So in our wounding, we have entered a space where we are mentally enslaved and not only mentally enslaved, but in our bodies, we are enslaved. And certainly not only in our body, but in a spiritual way, we are enslaved. And so the healing journey and healing process 
has to have a moment in it where we reconnect with that one who has been wanting and desiring the reconnection and hearing you get to that place where you're like utterly, there is nothing in my control that I can do. Someone help me. And the response comes. And so there is the soul lover that is presented who then speaks the truth and makes you aware of the suffering and the death and now the need to rise. And then, of course, there's a soul lover, those who are parts of our lives, those who see our wounding, see us sometimes at our best. But, you know, it's almost like a wave crashes over us. We go under the wave and they're like holding their breath, waiting for you to like just come back to the surface, just kind of, you know, come back to the surface, just breathe again, be the you that they have known at one time. So the soul lover is also present. And I must, you know, circle back around to the great house and all that the great house represents. And there's so much, so many other elements that are woven into this particular dream. But, and I could focus on all of the other elements, like the brand new car, the gravel roads and stuff like that. But I really want to zoom in on the characters because the characters are the people that we forgive. And so over the next little while, we are going to be um, becoming aware of a forgiveness process, a new uh, forgiveness process that I'm going to introduce to you. It's powerful. It's so deep. And it allows us to come back to the garden and rise above the garden to actually notice the battlefield and the journey way way ahead and so before I close I have a coming home poem that was written by Friar Thomas Keating it's called open mind open heart and I think it speaks to the awakening and the awareness that we need to re-enter this place this beautiful home this place of rest and peace Coming home. This presence is so immense, yet so humble, awe-inspiring, yet so gentle, limitless, yet so intimate, tender, and personal. I know that I am known. Everything in my life is transparent in this presence. I know everything about me, all my weaknesses, brokenness, sinfulness, and still loves me infinitely. This presence is healing, strengthening, refreshing just by its presence. It is non-judgmental, self-giving, seeking no reward, boundless in compassion. It is like coming home to a place I should never have left, to an awareness that was somehow always there, but which I did not recognize. Thank you, Friar Thomas Keating, for this beautiful poem, Coming Home. And over the last 10 days, I have certainly been on this beautiful journey where I recognize that I am now home. And now that I'm home, there is something beautiful that is to come and a journey of healing that will Involve those of you who are listening um, and those of you who will listen in the future. So thanks for listening to Becoming Beautiful I Am. Until next time, rise, forgive, and live fearlessly.